when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, something interesting started to occur. The Democrats started listening to their base. Yeah, after a weekend in which demonstrations erupted at major airports across the country in protest of President Donald Trump's Muslim travel ban, Democrats in Washington have suddenly found some steel, standing with their supporters in the street and withdrawing a more readily offered rubber stamp in the Senate confirmation hearings. Can they possibly keep this up? Meanwhile, we need to talk about that executive order itself. Talk about a Friday news dump. The Trump White House's directives, which initially barred refugees, travelers, and legal permanent residents alike from entering or re-entering the country, caused disorder and chaos across the country, all of which the Trump administration is pretending to have not noticed. We're going to break down what we know and what might come next. And finally, the new president had the opportunity this week to dip his toe in the fetid pond left behind by his predecessor, the ongoing conflict in Yemen, which played host to Donald Trump's first command decision as the commander-in-chief. It's an open question how Trump will deal with this mess that Obama left behind, but this week gave us some indication about the shape that Donald Trump's foreign policy might take. Is it going to be good? Well, I would stick around to hear from myself if I were you, but spoiler alert, no. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Akbar Ahmed, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Elise Foley. And here's what happened first. Hey, America, it's podcast time. Once again, welcome to another edition of So That Happened, our weekly forage in the garbage trench that is American politics. Glad to have you here. My name is Jason Lincoln. I'm the editor of Eat the Press at the Huffington Post, and I'm joined as always by uh, esteemed colleagues, member of the fellow member of the London Perantes Appreciation Society, Zach Carter. Hi, everyone. And also with us today, we have someone who's uh, just done a terrific job, and more and more people are recognizing him. Arthur <laughs> Delaney. Hi. What's up? Alive. We're still alive, man. All of you out there, if you're hearing this, you're still alive too. Probably, maybe you're not. But um, last week, okay, last week we were talking about well, many many sundry things, but we also talked about a little bit about the Democratic Party and how they're coming to terms with the new reality that is the Trump administration, and whether or not they're keeping pace with a, a base, a Democratic base that seems ready to rumble, go out in the streets, protest, uh, drop the hammer on policies that look bad. I think, Zach, this time last week, we were kind of feeling like the Democrats were completely 100% blowing it over the past few days. I think they've maybe righted the ship a little bit. I think they've gone from totally blowing it to being sort of confused and and stumbling in the right direction. I, I, I think there was there was some <laughs> – when, when Elizabeth Warren, who is sort of the most um, – 
the, the Democratic leader who's most willing to be critical of the rest of the Democratic leadership, when she's voting for Ben Carson and Trump nominees, uh, you know you're in a bad place if you're a Democrat. Um, this week, people were walking – Democrats basically boycotted um, a, a series of nomination hearings for Trump nominees um, at – after massive protests from their from their base. And we're not talking about like the radical left here. These are not Leninists who are out in the street. These are a bunch of establishment lawyers showing up at airports saying that it's bad to ban people based on their religion. Uh, so yeah. so it's, it seems like the party leaders are, are sort of getting the message. It's been, so last week, unprecedented uh, protest attendance, broadly anti-Trump women's march, no Democrats. That was two weeks ago, but yeah. Well, you know, this is this is what we were talking about Fe- as and of say last week. Few Democrats, just so we don't paint with the broadest yeah. possible oh. brush. Got, got, few, got to give on, Maxine man. Waters some credit; right. she was few at Democrats. the uh, yeah. John Kerry was walking his dog by his one dog. Yeah, but anyway, this week, Democrats at protests. Nancy Pelosi singing, "This is this land is your land" outside the Supreme Court. Wow, big difference. Uh, I mean, I, that's great and all. I was thinking more in terms of elected Democrats going to the airport to demand that the uh, Border Patrol honor the uh, judicial order. Uh, but yeah, but yeah, we've seen a lot more of that. We've seen, like Which you said, let's speak. That's an important thing here. Yeah, legally, absolutely. That, 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 that it, was it, Jerry Connolly and some others. And Jerry Connolly is not exactly a left wing radical, right? He's no, a, not sort at of dyed in the wool, new, new Democrat, corporate Democrat, Clinton mold from the 1990s. He is showing up at airports saying, hey, it is bad that the judicial branch of this government has said that the Border Patrol needs to stop doing something and the Border Patrol is doing it anyway. That is a very problematic rule of law breakdown yeah. in a democratic society. Uh, so so Jerry Connolly, not exactly, you know, a leader of the Red Army, but but <laughs> showing up for the rule of law. Yeah, both Virginia senators, <laughs> Tim Kaine and Mark Warner, uh, made similar appearances. I know Cory Booker was out doing the same thing. And I feel like it's been a sort of more broadly felt uh, sentiment among Democrats watching what unfolded over the weekend happening. And, you know, let's face it, uh, the Democratic base, they (laughs) high turnout at America's airports, which is not a place most people want to go. Of course, there's still challenges ahead. We talked last week about how there was a real need for them to start banking some resistance uh, where they could because we talked about how the the uh, the temptation to join in with an infrastructure package is going to be pretty tempting, especially if it's a decent inter- infrastructure pa- package. Now this week, Democrats come face to face with the need to uh, confront the uh, advise and consent on Donald Trump's new uh, pick for the Supreme Court, and uh, I think this is going to be kind of a real tricky pass for Democrats because. Uh, I think the base is very, very riled up about the fact that Merrick Garland, who let's what's interesting about Merrick Garland is the base wasn't too excited about Merrick Garland when he was announced as Obama's pick. Once again, not a leader of the Red Army. Right. Yeah. But when white guy, but when when uh, when when Mitch McConnell basically sort of, you know, semi constitutionally crisis did up by sitting on that nomination, not not advancing in any meaningful way, it it really uh, sort of like. The need for vindication and, res- and, and the, the expression of resentment began, and it's still very high today. The Democratic base probably just don't want anybody sitting in that seat at all. 
Um, of course, they don't have a they don't have a majority. They can't guarantee that they'll block him successfully. And I'm amenable to the argument that this guy that uh, Trump has picked, Gorich, uh, may have a few interesting gifts for Democrats. Uh, but leaving that aside, what do you think Democrats should do? How should they approach this? Well, the key benefit of Gorsuch that's been uh, out there is that he would be a potentially a check on Trump based on his past rulings in favor of judicial independence and executive overreach. And, and more specifically, uh, executive overreach in, in areas where immigration is the key issue. Well, why should Democrats just roll over and let Republicans have a Supreme Court pick when this was their pick and the blockade of the previous administration's choice was totally unprecedented? Why then say, well, you know, I guess we got to go by our traditions yep. when when the other side does not. That's, I think that's a good question. That's the counter argument. You know, the Republicans didn't pay any electoral stakes for their intransigence. Nobody so there's, cares. There's no reason to believe that Democrats would would pay any pay any electoral stakes for uh, being intransigent in this case and in fact it may energize the base a little bit much. Sack, what do you think? Democratic party's got to got to recognize that they have no policy making power right now. What they have is the power to communicate with human beings a majority of whom in the United States did not vote for Donald Trump, and to signal to those people that they agree with those people. They do not agree with Donald Trump. And they're, you know, they, they can try to block this Supreme Court nomination. Uh, if, if Mitch McConnell wants, he can just go to the nuclear option, which is increasingly a dangerous metaphor given that Donald Trump is president. <laughs> yeah. But they they can they can just they can they can nuke the filibuster and then he will get he will he will get through and be approved as a supreme court justice there's really nothing they can do to stop Mitch McConnell from doing that what you can do is force McConnell into a difficult spot where he's got to got to essentially confront and deal and negotiate with Donald Trump about whether or not he wants to do that and then you can communicate to the rest of the public that you are not on that team but that's all they can do they're not going to be able to win policy battles and they're not going to be able to do it for years all they can do is mobilize actual human beings. And the fact that you have lawyers, people are voluntarily going to the airport right now. Right. Nobody in their right mind goes to an airport on the weekend JFK. when they don't have to tra travel. That's Airports are terrible places. No one wants to be there. And you have, you have people showing up en masse at airports all over the country to protest. Given that that energy exists, Democrats have got to figure out a way to harness that in, through, through a sort of non-federal uh, exercise of power, uh, which involves essentially communication and pressure on, on other lawmakers. I think that makes a lot of sense. And a lot of the arguments in favor of Democrats' abiding tradition in, in confirming or at least participating in confirmation of Supreme Court or other cabinet appointees is just like this next level – chess stuff where you imagine right. you will call a truce with Mitch McConnell on future filibuster use or you will store up uh, like goodies with Trump himself that you can then call in at a later time right when neither man has ever indicated that you really win by yeah when was the last time yeah when yeah. was the last time Mitch McConnell did the the second most ruthless option on the table right, right exactly. he always picks the first most ruthless <laughs> you're this, not you're not storing up goodwill with him this is a pretty opportune time for democrats we saw the washington post reported yesterday that there's polling out that indicates uh, that the Democratic base is suddenly very massively energized, especially women in the Democratic base. I remember uh, the Los Angeles Times reporter Matt Pierce was talking about that story and, say, and saying, uh, so for the first time we have actual numbers that back up what we suspected all along, which is that the Democratic ba base 
is mobilizing in a way they haven't in previous uh, election cycles. And so it is an opportunity now for uh, Democratic electeds to uh, – electeds tend to lag behind – they're tending to be a lagging indicator on the whole you know movement front. But this is a good time for them to surf that wave. There was uh, an interesting comment by Pelosi on basically this uh, exact question. 51% of people between 18 and 29 no longer support the system of capitalism. But I wonder if there's anywhere you feel that the Democrats could move farther left to a more populist message the way the alt-right has sort of captured this populist strain on the right wing, if you think we could make a, a more stark contrast to right-wing economics. Well, I thank you for your question, uh, but I have to say we're capitalist, and that's just the way it is. So that was uh, uh, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi at a town hall responding to a question from a young guy. Uh, are you are Democrats going to go left uh, the way Republicans have gone right in a, in a populist way? And her answer was a clear no. She said a bunch of stuff that was sort of technocratic gobbledygook that wasn't totally wrong about how capitalism yeah, has changed over the last 30 years. Yeah, if we had let her uh, continue talking in this clip, you would have heard all this gobbledygook yeah. about shareholders and uh, income inequality. But yeah. the answer was no. The answer was essentially no, and um, and you know I think she's going to have a different answer the next time she's asked that question. If she's asked, "Can you move left on economic policy?" She's not going to say, "Look, we're capitalists, doggone it." She's going to say, "We need to do more to stand up for workers and make sure that their voices are, are heard in Washington." She'll say something like that the next time. But I think this is a great example of of <laughs> the the leadership of the Democratic Party not really being prepared. For this particular, you don't. And to be clear, you don't have to say we are not capitalists. You don't have to. You don't have to start quoting Lenin here. No, it's, no, okay, it's okay. Not. That That's, wasn't the option <laughs> she was presented there. I think she may have been dovetailing off the specific mention. Do we need an alt left to compete with an alt right? No, I'm of the opinion that it's not really necessary. I think you that we, such toxic branding. We don't need to bring the black bloc <laughs> yeah. into this into this no. into this fight. Um, and I think that's reasonable. And also, you know, 65 million people who voted for Hillary Clinton, and we're not going anywhere without the people who voted for Hillary Clinton, like it or not. Um, but to, to you know, you, you you mentioned just a minute ago that the Democrats don't have the policy to make policy in the sense that they can't. You know, reliably present bills and get them enacted right. by Donald Trump. Just to, but but to 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 step on step off that for a second. Uh, you know, and I'm also kind of dovetailing with um, an article that Emmett Renzen recently wrote for the L.A. Review of Books. One of the key things about uh, about resistance is that you have to actually have ideas on the table. You have to imagine a world to go to if yes. you don't like the world you're in now. And so while Democrats aren't really in the position to pass a lot of bills, get a lot of laws enacted, this is still an opportune time for them to start generating ideas and start painting that picture for the people who are out there on the street about the world that we they want everyone to emerge into. I feel like that can incorporate a lot of the lessons we've learned from the past election, especially a lot of the, the lessons about you know how the middle class is feeling isolated and alone with uh, with uh, officials from the government rarely talking to them, rarely addressing their concerns, rarely even being in the space with them, uh, and starting to sort of like merge that together with some of the policies that they've embraced for a long time that have always served them in good stead, sticking up for uh, you know marginalized groups. Um, they should understand that the middle class right now is really a marginalized group. And with Donald Trump 
seemingly poised to, you know, uh, sign a national right to work bill uh, into into office. That uh, means it, national it, right to destroy unions. unions. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is the, the middle class is going to only grow more marginalized under Trump and eventually more angry. So four years from now. Uh, they can't just have a guy with a D at the, or a woman with a D at the end of their name. They need to have a, a, a buffet of ideas, too. And they need to use their imagination now, like Emma talked about in that piece. I mean, look, nothing unifies a disparate group of people like a common enemy. So I think I think the power of no is a real thing. And there's a reason why you have a bunch of lawyers, you know, locking arms with Bernie bros at airports right now. I mean, these are people who were just fighting about the Democratic nomination for over a year who now are on the same team. But I think that, that I think the, the, the long term project here cannot cannot disappear in, in the middle of that. So where, where that does, struggle. If, if you're if you're harnessing the power of no, where does that leave people like Sherrod Brown who are sticking up for trade protections for low education workers? Like does Trump just get to own that? I mean, that, that that is that is basically, I think, I think the problem. I think if Democrats do not voice a coherent uh, clear message about why they are the party of of working people and why working people should turn to them for options. People will turn to uh, to to the increasingly authoritarian uh, tinged policies of the Trump administration. Maybe this is a chance for uh, a permanent three day weekend movement that I've always dreamed of. It, you know, it, they, they what they need is is a pretty simple platform with a couple of very clear principles about about how they are going to be the real party. Of All right, I'll, I'll see you guys on yeah. Tuesday. <laughs> Uh, nothing, nothing's impossible. It's just hard, and you have to start doing the hard work now because it's going to take a while. All right, guys, thanks for talking us through that. We have a really fine show, and uh, you should just stick around because we're going to be right back in a second. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And we're back. So when we left off last week, uh, we had no idea that so many interesting things were about to happen to so many people who normally would just come back to this country from abroad. Uh, instead, we had a pretty wild weekend of people being held up at airports and people protesting at airports. You really have to hand it to somebody when it comes to a bad political decision where you can get New Yorkers to turn out en masse at JFK Airport to protest it. That's remarkable. To d discuss everything that's happened. 
here's Arthur Delaney. Hi. Uh, and uh, we we welcome back Elise Foley. Hello. So a lot. So exciting when I get to be here. It is always exciting. Bad stuff's happening. I, I don't want to make it sound like every time we have a guest on, it's because bad stuff's happening. But in this case, you're back. Um, so what happened? Foley's follies. <laughs> what, what happened, Elise? What's going um, on? Okay. Well, so it's kind of complicated. Basically, the Trump administration, Trump himself, signed an order on Friday that bars people from the country if they're a refugee at all from anywhere, um, if they are from seven countries, just happen to be all Muslim-majority countries, mm. not a Muslim ban, guys. Sure. Has nothing to do with Muslims, um, according to the Trump people, uh, but it targets them specifically. And that applied at first to literally anybody with a passport from those countries, including if you have a green card to be here. So like you mentioned this weekend, um, this past weekend, there were all these people who got held up at the airport who otherwise, I mean, who who live here, who wanted to go back to their house or their kids or whatever. Um, and they sort of had to do damage control and figure out later how um, what the problems were with implementing this because they didn't even you know know all the details till it came out. So the, he signs this order and then Customs and Border Patrol has no idea how to deal with it. And it wasn't clear whether they had to detain or or bar entry by green card holders. Yeah, he signs it, and then they're like having to implement it immediately. And so they were saying, you know, they give people guidance or whatever. But if you're a person who was on a flight, you could be on a flight. You've like turned your phone on airplane mode, whatever, and then you're getting off the plane, and all of a sudden you're not allowed in the country anymore. Surprise! I mean, and that and that's talking about people who are legal permanent residents. There's all sorts of people who. Um, you know, don't have a visa that is letting them get an exception to come into the country. The Trump administration, which is a few days old, <laughs> has has developed this tendency to be real shit show vaudeville about things. There's so many things about the implementation of this particular executive order that were screwy. They didn't consult with the relevant uh, cabinet agencies. They didn't consult with lawyers to determine whether what they had actually written was legal uh they they invited court challenges which they subsequently lost it turns out that people who did consult on this on this executive order were legislative assistants from the house of representatives who did so without their uh without their senator without their representatives knowing they were involved in this activity weird it's all really a strange and fucked up way of going about this particular business yeah, it's very, very strange. Um, so the Homeland Security Secretary, John Kelly, was uh, talking about this at a briefing and, he, you know, people were pressing him on whether he knew about it before it came out. And he was saying, oh, yeah, you know, I, I saw drafts, um, you know, my, my staff worked on it. Uh, but there's reports that he didn't know about the details of it, at least the final, final order until he was on a plane and getting briefed on it when Trump signed it. Uh, and so people were asking him, well, did you know about it in the sense, like, did you read about it in the news? Like, um, and he wouldn't really say, but he was saying, finally, he was like, you know, we all we all knew what was going to be in it because Trump has been talking about it for a year, a year and a half on the campaign trail, which is true, but also sort of true, but also brings up what, you know, are you sure you want to say that this order is what Trump proposed to do on the campaign trail? I, I think that was the most important question of the week regarding this order because he 
said during the campaign he wanted to stop Muslims from coming to the United States, period. Right. Crystal clear. A Muslim and, ban. And not off the cuff. He wrote, you know, his campaign, wrote, it down, wrote yeah. a statement. And and for what it's worth, we also know that he went to Rudy Giuliani for advice on how to enact a Muslim ban. We have seen Sean Spicer in repeated briefings call it a ban before he suddenly decided it wasn't a ban anymore. But there's 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 like multiple layers of kind of like semantic disconnect going on between the wider world of reality and what the Trump administration has to say about it, including uh, up to and including the number of people they believe were, quote, inconvenienced by this order. Right. So they keep saying over and over 109 people inconvenienced. And, you know, the the purpose of that is to make it seem like people are being hysterical about this. People, oh, people are making such a big fuss. All that happened was people were a little inconvenienced, not that many people, very small number, kind of comparing it to like when other people have to wait in line at TSA as if there's anything similar to like being handcuffed. Yeah. Or, you know, like locked in a room for overnight like as a five-year-old. Um, so anyway, the, the clear purpose of that is to just make it seem like the people who are upset are being excessive. In actuality, the number of people who have green cards who ended up having to go through this like special process and get a waiver to enter the country was more than a thousand, uh, like 75 more who ha- got other waivers. And I don't know, you know, we don't know exactly how long those people were held up, but certainly they count as being inconvenienced. And the Trump administration is, you know, conveniently does not like to mention that there's more than 109 people. Just use that number from the first three hours or, you know, the first few hours um, and use it, you know, forever. And then they can just claim that it's much smaller. And that's not even that's not even talking about the millions of people who are banned from coming to, to the country at all. All the refugees who are stuck in refugee camps because they're not allowed to come. So, right. I mean, even a thousand people is far from the measure of the actual influence. I thought given the context of Trump clearly proposing a Muslim ban, that it was very valid for people to react to it the way they did as though this, sure. this were you know, a religious test on travelers. And then these questions about the statutory origin of the countries on the list were were you know additional detail but an instance where nuances and details are used to distract from the big picture i think another thing that really disturbed me about the events of the past weekend is we mentioned that border patrol was kind of like left on their own to decide how to apply the instructions they got. But midway through the weekend, the ACLU won a national stay order on this law. And from there, it devolved into a lot of individual instances of Border Patrol uh, essentially defying a court order, which is, I think, where you get into the whole constitutional crisis part. Oh, yeah, that was disconcerting. How did that shake out? How did that end up? Well, there were there were so many court orders, but one of them also was that they were supposed to let people see their attorneys, and that was one that they were just not, according to the attorneys, letting people in to to talk to all week. Someone. Or did they eventually relent? Like, how was that settled? It seemed like you know, weren't they? Isn't there a possibility that if you defy a court order, the court has to send the U.S. marshals to like arrest people for being in contempt of court? What what technically? What could yes. have happened, and what did happen? Well, it's so hard to figure out the details of all of this because uh, it's slowed down now because people just aren't allowed to get on planes. But 
for a while, I mean, there continues, there continued to be people coming in. So it's a little bit hard to say, but, uh, I believe that they've released a lot of the people who were detained. Um, so at this point they have been able to see their lawyers, but I, I mean, there were just many, many hours where that was not the case. Can't the legislative branch resolve this impasse, however? I mean, regardless of whether they are pro-Muslim ban, pro-some other kind of ban, pro-refugee ban, or against the whole kit and caboodle, it seems to me that it's up to them to step in and say the executive branch has to honor the court order. They have to defer to the judicial system in this case. I mean, they could they could do that. I don't necessarily think that that's going to happen. I the, Members of Congress tried to do that, and they just they went and yelled at yeah, sure, they would, police yeah. at the airport. And yeah. I, I mean, the Democrats have tried to do things. Uh, I think a lot of Republicans who voiced opposition to this, a, a lot of them had like broader, you know, complete opposition to the fact that this is, you know, gonna, potentially going to be used by terrorists to uh, recruit people, but. Beyond that, a lot of people didn't like that it included green card holders, that it included people who were um, Iraqi and had worked for the U.S. Armed Forces, um, who some of them were getting got detained. And so there were criticisms about that. The Trump administration just went ahead and tried to fix those by making exceptions for those people. And I think by doing that, maybe took a little bit of the... Um, maybe took a little bit of the heat off of Republicans who might have been inclined to get on board with some of this and uh, some of the restrictions. And maybe, I, I don't know. I don't know if they'll do anything or not. So so ultimately, it uh, it looked like we dipped our toe in that constitutional crisis, but didn't fully submerge. It still they, feels they stepped away from it. It still feels very bad to me. It also well, and feels... I think that we need to remember um, that it's it's not just about the people who came in this weekend and had issues. It's about all the people who never got to get on a flight to come at all and right. and will not. What What do you make of the reports about um, how Homeland Security offered an interpretation or suggestion that they not exclude? Uh, legal permanent residents, green card holders, and it getting countermanded by the White House in the immediate uh, implementation of this bill, of this of this executive order. It's not a bill. Sorry. I mean, I don't. I I just know the same news reports you do. I can't say I have any you know additional intel on it or anything. But you do have people in the White House who have been pretty critical of even legal immigration. Right. Um, Stephen Miller. Steve Bannon, Bannon, right, and they're the people who reportedly wanted it to be as broad as it was. So I, I think that you know there is great potential that there was complete openness to having legal permanent residents on there. Part, Clearly, this- I mean, they unless they just were completely unaware of anything, they must have known when Trump signed the order that it would include them the way it was written. It would include green card holders. Finally, the next thing that's coming down the pike seems to be an executive order that would uh, enjoin immigrants, green card holders, from public assistance? Right. We we don't know what's going to happen with that. That's one that's a draft that's out there. Some of us here feel that might just be a trial balloon, but you never well, it's know. Well, it's an idea happen. people like Jeff Sessions have been kicking around for years, so clearly this stuff is all in the wings. Yeah. All right. Well, guess what? You'll have, you'll have ample opportunities to come back on the podcast at least that cannot wait that has to thrill you as it thrills so many of our guests um thanks for for helping us out though um thank you arthur we will be You're welcome we, we will be right back 
And welcome back. Uh, we're joined once again by Zach Carter. Hey, everyone. And uh, also, great guest, we have our good friend, Akbar Ahmed. Hi. Which means we're probably going to be talking about some kind of sticky, wicky <laughs> foreign entanglement <laughs> that the previous administration bequeathed to the current administration against all good sense. Am I wrong? Um, yeah, they could have ended it. They could have prevented some of this. Okay, do you like the device where I show up and like maybe I don't know what the segment's going to be about, but I just look at the people around the table and think, oh, this must be what's happening. <laughs> now, we, um, so we're going to be talking about the, the ongoing conflict in Yemen. Mm-hmm. And it's something that now uh, uh, President Donald Trump has gotten his little stubby fingers <laughs> wet in. Tell us about what's been going on uh, during the interregnum between uh, the Obama presidency and 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 Trump's inauguration and where we're at now. Sure. Uh, it's important to remember there are two conflicts in Yemen, really, that we talk about, and we shouldn't confuse them. I mean, they, they do relate to each other, but they are two entities. One is the counter-terror fight, however you want to cite terror, but al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is a big group in Yemen. It's one of the only al-Qaeda branches ever to target the U.S. directly, Uh, one of the most most lethal al-Qaeda branches. Then there is a separate Saudi war in Yemen against uh, Iran-backed rebels, which Obama got involved with, which means the U.S. is now involved in many sides of this war, is not quite sure what it's doing. And the Saudi war since um, that March of 2015 has actually given al-Qaeda more space to grow than ever before, because everyone is focusing on fighting the Saudis and the Iranians' battles for them. Uh, and Great. Yeah. But this week, this week uh, Donald Trump launched his first major military offensive. Uh, it was a SEAL team strike against a uh, AQAP stronghold yes. in, in Yemen. I forget what where in Yemen it was. Central Yemen. Okay, so um, it's in central Yemen. And it, uh, it, it, it sounds to me, according to extant reports, and there are reports that – uh, maybe play up the notion of a rush to make a decision and an incompetent execution of the decision and reports that downplay that. Um, but it, to, to all reports, it sounds to me like this this thing went kind of sideways. Yeah. Uh, so let's just run down the details of kind of what happened. They went into an al-Qaeda stronghold about twice as large as they thought it was uh, with a lot less preparation, a lot less understanding of who was there. They killed uh, up to 14 people, including an American eight-year-old. And one Navy SEAL was also killed in the shooting. Um, what's important to think about here is that Trump did inherit this war from Obama, right? So the Saudis and their friends, the UAE, have been involved in Yemen now for over uh, about two years. The Emiratis were part of this raid. Uh, and what's really disappointing is that they were not able to provide the intelligence, the sort of strategic guidance to not end up killing this many civilians, uh, which is scary. Because it also makes you think about why is the U.S. involved with these two powers if it's not even getting a counterterrorism gain out of it. Um, and this is... This is the side of the conflict, the, the branch of conflict in Yemen, which is less problematic for a lot of people in the United States. The the, the anti the counterterrorism, anti AQAP yes. stuff is a is you don't see as many people criticizing that. No, that, even that, Bernie that Sanders yeah. was supportive of drone strikes in Yemen. Trump has also launched. It's important to remember his first drone strike since he became president uh, last weekend in Yemen. Uh, so Yemen is sort of this awful battlefield where a lot of different people can take out their anger problems, right, and, and sort of chalk up counter-terror wins. Say we killed X number of terrorists. Um, 
and that obviously the classification of terrorists varies widely depending on who happens to be around. And it's an ongoing humanitarian disaster as Major well. Major humanitarian disaster, yeah. famine, uh, medicine, sort of shortages, upwards of 10,000 people killed. And, and a lot of displacement, internal displacement. Tons of internal displacement. Uh, and and we have not seen as of yet, you know, the Trump administration is squabbling over the details of was it a botch raid? Did we have enough intel? They have yet to give us any kind of policy or direction of what they actually want to do here to end the fighting and to stop at least this U.S.-backed, Saudi-led war. Because if that were to be stopped, that could at least allow a lot more focus on counter-terror. Um, doesn't help that Donald Trump has instituted a Muslim ban on countries that include Yemen. And so the Yemeni government, what remains of it, the internationally recognized Yemeni government, has always been supportive of U.S. counter-terror. They've been saying, great, come drone us. Obama loves it, Bernie loves it, you all like it, come do it, right? But the more you alienate that government by saying your nationals can't even travel to our country... Right. This is even. This is even. There, there could be a, a refugee situation in short order, but this isn't even a situation yeah. where we are. We're we, we're actually preventing, you know, state officials and green card holders mm-hmm. from Yemen from coming in. People who are illegal permanent residents from Yemen coming in, um, which is got to muddy the waters in terms of like the diplomatic mission going on between, gosh, all these parties in this area. And and it's important to remember, like. The places where we've seen terror threats to the U.S. emanate from are not places where there's just, like, big, scary, evil Muslims, like, hiding in a cave. It's places where there hasn't been civil society engagement, right? It's Afghanistan. It's northwestern Pakistan. It's places and Yemen. Yemen is where, of course, uh, Osama bin Laden's tribe is from. A lot of the 9-11 hijackers have Yemen ties. This is a country that, because it's been poor, ignored, and forced to, to live in a way that's not conducive to, to really, like, having a stable society has always been a terror recruitment hub, and we're only making that worse. Zach, am I crazy? I watched Donald Trump campaign for the better part of two years, and I've never really got a fix on what he thinks about military engagements. At times, he comes off like a broadly as a, as a war and intervention skeptic, the sort of person who might, if that was actually at the core of his thinking, uh, immediately extract us from at least the civil conflict mm. in Yemen. But at other times, he seems to embrace this notion that we're in a class of, clash of civilizations and the best thing we can do to settle it is uh, military deployment and bombs. He he definitely moved back and forth during the campaign from we're going to bomb the shit out of them, something he actually said on the campaign trail, um, to to trying to claim credit for being against the Iraq war before before the invasion happened, which was a lie, but um, but was something that he, he repeated over and over again. So I think there are people in his base of support who have uh, pretty serious anti-war sentiments in They general. will say all uh, the time, the reason we voted for Donald Trump is it will keep us out of wars. Yeah. And, I was like, and wow. yet there, I think there are also people in his base of support who um, are, are kind of uh, – maximalists on on, yeah. on foreign policy, um, on the ability of bombs to solve problems. I think what's particularly troubling about the Trump administration right now is the role of, um, of his advisor, Steve Bannon. Uh, I think Steve Bannon is um, terrifyingly uh, bright. I think when he talks about the world and the forces at play, um, 
he talks about them in a way that's very clear and I think more cogent than what most of the Republican establishment and the, the Democratic Party establishment has been has been saying for, for several decades. But every time he gets to, and therefore we should do a good thing, he says, no, actually the bad people are good. Um, his, his vision seems to involve uh, a, a, a major violent global conflict being central to renewing American greatness. Um, in this very, he talks about like the Battle of Tours and all these mm-hmm. this this weird shit from like Edward Gibbon about you know this clash of civilization stuff that you're talking about, where the West has got to win a war. We've got to you know we've got to revive Herodotus and Gibbon and and conquer all the brown people. Um, I think that's pretty scary. And he's now on the he's, he's now a national security advisor. Uh, not just you, know, you don't usually have people who are political aides uh, on on that committee. And and his worldview is is one that. Uh, I, it, it, it frightens me that the best case scenario here is that we could be sort of like a failed petro state. Um, the, the worst case scenario is that we are we are wiped it, out it, in a nuclear conflict. We, we are instigating war, a world war in which we are the bad guys. And this is why people like the Saudis and the Emiratis who are involved in Yemen should be terrified. I mean, and of course, the the refrain from Muslim country, Muslim majority U.S. allies has been, great, 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 he's going to hate Iran. I keep trying to remind people, this is not an Iranophobic administration. That's a, that's a classic Republican view. This is an Islamophobic administration, which is very different. That's going to target your allies. It's going to target Saudi, Turkey, all of them. And hopefully, they sort of will shape up and not give them more cause to target them. But I can certainly see a wrench being pushed. And the Yemen war is a perfect wrench. Ramp up Saudi conflict, make them commit war crimes, and then say, well, actually, now we hate you. So here's the war. And that's that's a very different sort of place for the foreign policy debate to be than where it was six months ago when you had people like Chris Murphy, as you know, a a mainstream Democratic senator, not Mm -hmm. like a left winger or anything, um, saying, you know, we need to rethink the United States relationship. In a quite nuanced way. Yeah, that's not that's not that. I mean, Bannon has also indicated that he thinks we're going to be going to war with China within five to ten years, which if Donald Trump got reelected would put squarely in his administration. I have a hard time contemplating a war with China because I think about, well, I mean, it would be in the South China Sea probably. We'd have to like eliminate the navy they have there. To do that, we'd have to mount a conventional attack on the Chinese mainland. And I don't know if a conventional attack on the Chinese mainland triggers anything other than a nuclear response. There, there is there are real problems with the United States foreign policy with respect to China. There there have been yeah. decisions made over the last thirty years that I I think have been um, the United States just doesn't really know what to do. Uh, you know the the, the 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 trade policy in particular, where supply chains for everything from like matches to light bulbs is controlled has to go through China. So, you know, we, we if we start a violent conflict with China, there's all sorts of just stuff that we can't have in the United States. Yes. Um, so, so there, there like are prob- fire and light. <laughs> and look, and there, there are problems with the U.S. foreign policy approach to China. The right response to that is to fix them, not to start chest thumping about going to war with a country of a billion people. And, and to maintain right U.S. relationships. Because the other thing about... It's tempting to see this all as inevitable, right? That Bannon and Trump can get us what they want by pushing us to a situation where a terror attack happens, where the U.S. can turn on, you know, and, and, and a big conflict is just inevitable because of their policies. It's important to remember they can't accomplish what they see as, as important without the U.S.'s network of power. The U.S.'s power is Britain and Australia. It is Europe, 
right? And if if Australia wants to be chummier with China, which it could well be, they've already been making moves towards that over the last three months. Trump insulted them last weekend. If Europe is floating away and again getting closer to China, they loved Xi Jinping when he showed up at Davos in January. The U.S. isn't going to have the capacity, and so instead it's going to become this kind of small, isolated place where a matchbox costs $15. That is not how you expand global influence. Uh, it's, pop- <laughs> it's, it's also not particularly populist, but um, yeah, what can I say? Look, uh, I mean, the, the, the thing that's really bad about this is that there is there is a totally credible case for a for the United States to be taking a tougher line with China on the international stage. To some extent, I think Barack Obama was trying to do that with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I don't yes. think that was a particularly well thought out way of, a pro- of going about that. Uh, but there were there were there is a reasoned, rational case for, for taking a measured, more you know, harder line with China. Going around talking about going to war with people is not a reasoned, measured approach. And offering your softer face. I was at the Chinese embassy on Wednesday at the Chinese National Day, and lo and behold, at 7.45 p.m., literally Ivanka Trump starts walking towards my face. She's also, like, gargantuan. She's, like, eight feet tall. But she arrived at this Chinese embassy, and she was obviously meant to be this goodwill ambassador. It doesn't matter if you have Ivanka saying, we like the world, and I will come to the Chinese embassy and look at your dumpling display, right? Like, which is literally what she did yesterday. If, on the other hand, you're saber-rattling every minute. Um, and so that's the question. Who wins out in the Trump clicks? This is bad. This is very bad. Don't worry. John McCain and Lindsey Graham will figure it out. Yeah, what world are we living in where John McCain and Lindsey Graham are the cautious, reasonable foreign policy intelligentsia from the Republican Party? We're living in this world, apparently. <laughs> Indeed. All right, uh, Zach and Akbar. Zach Barr. <laughs> Thank you for being with us, and we will be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week we were joined by Huffington Post reporters Akbar Ahmed, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Elise Foley. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Please check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you next week if we're all alive. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.